it is all about the cross. It is at the cross. You know, that's a, that's a difficult thing for many to believe, to understand what the cross has to do with it. Well, as we keep walking through the book of Mark, go to chapter 9, as we continue walking, we will see why the cross is so important and the difficulty that people had understanding the cross. So we're going to kind of, we're going to continue to, to uh, waller in chapters 8 and 9 and for a while as we continue to see the theme from God of uh, the cross and understanding the truth and understanding uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But you know, last week, uh, something really stuck out to me. It was from the mouth of God came the words, the, you know, these words that we should live by. Words that should ring in our minds at all times. Words that should motivate us. The words that we heard should, be, should remind us of the living hope that we have in our hearts. And it's a simple command that came from God. If you remember, he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Wow, that sums it up, doesn't it? Think about that for a moment. Think about that statement. God says, God says, not some self-proclaimed prophet, not just an average fallen man, you know, not any religious leader. No, no, this statement came from God himself. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. A voice from heaven. Could you imagine being the guys up there on that mountain? The, a voice from heaven, the, the Shekinah glory of God engulfs that mountain, and you hear these words, listen to him. I would say they're very important. Very important words to live by. Now, we know that God was speaking to the disciples at that time. He wanted to make sure that they did not miss the point that the Son, the Son of God, must die. He wanted to make sure they did not miss that. He wanted to make sure that they were listening to what Jesus had to say. The Son of Man suffering and dying is a very important part and God wanted to, of God's plan, and God wanted to make sure that everyone understood what was going to happen. The Messiah dying is a stumbling block for the Jews, but not for God. So we finished last week. We saw Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They're, they're coming down from the mountain. They, ha they had a mountaintop experience. The disciples got to see Jesus in his glory. They were scared, it says. I would be too. They're not sure what to say. I would too. And Peter says this great Peter with the hoof and mouth disease, foot and mouth disease that he has there, man, he just blurts out the first thing that comes to mind. He said, let's build booths right here. Let's build tents right here and stay on this mountaintop. Peter was ready to skip the valley, as you remember we discussed last week. He was ready to skip the suffering of Christ. Yeah, forget that part of Jesus being handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees and death and the cross. Let's forget all that. Let's just stay right here on this mountaintop in the glory of God. That should be our reaction. We bust Peter up on this going, man, you know, what was he thinking? Thinking just like I would, just like you should. I mean, the end game is to be in the presence of God. The end game is to be in the presence of God and be in his glory. So it's not a bad thing that Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop. That's not bad. 
But we all know that there's no glory for us until Christ goes to the cross. There's no glory on the mountaintop until he goes through the valley. We know on this side of the cross the reason for the suffering of Christ. And the reason is for the payment of sin. Christ suffered and died for us as a propitiation for our sin. This was and is the plan of God for the salvation of the world. But these three men, these three disciples, they didn't know that. They couldn't see that. The three disciples saw Jesus in his glory, and, and they saw Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses, and, and, and they're talking about the death of Jesus that would come and how he's going to Jerusalem be handed over. The, those three up there were discussing the plan of God. Those three, the three glorified ones, understood the plan and the price that had to be paid for the forgiveness of sins, but the disciples didn't. They're looking up there confused. Last week we mentioned that the disciples had finally understood who Jesus was, but they did not understand the plan. They understood the man, but not the plan. They, they didn't understand the plan of salvation and how God was going to bring salvation to man because they were looking for a different type of salvation. They did not understand Jesus' mission. They had proclaimed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was the Savior. He was the Son of the living God. They did do that. It took them a while to get to that conclusion. But they did come to know who he really was and really is. But they could not comprehend. They could not put all this together. The death, the burial, the cross, the resurrection. How is this going to happen to the one that God is going to send? Peter and the rest of the gang wanted to move that part, like I said. They could not understand how death would save. In the same way, as, God, as Jesus was talking to him, they didn't understand how one would save his life by giving up his life back in chapter 8 that Pastor Ryan preached on. That didn't make sense either. It was all becoming very confusing to them. As hard as they tried, it was still confusing. They just couldn't put it together at this time. They will. They will, but not at this time. You know, as they saw Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus in the death to come, they could not put the pieces of the plan of salvation together. They would after the fact like we can on this side of the cross, but not right then. On that side, they were confused. So, if they did not understand the plan, if they could not understand all of that, then they surely could not explain it to others. And that's why Jesus said to them in chapter 9, verse 9, look down there, as they were coming down the mountain, so they're coming down from the mountain after the transfiguration, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, so he put a limit on it, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. So this is the one time that we see the disciples actually doing what Jesus had told them to do. Do not speak of this to, to, to others. You know, you know, one reason is they can't explain it. <laughs> so I'd hate to be in that conversation. I feel like I've been in a few of those in my life. But, you know, they're, they're at a turning point in, in their faith. They are maturing in their faith as they continue to follow and trust Christ at this time. I believe that at this time in their walk, they're starting to understand that they don't understand, which is good. Or they're starting to see that they don't know all that they think they know. Kind of like a teenager. Some of us is there. 
Some of us have been there, right? When you're young, you think you know it all. They think they know more than their parents. But as they grow, as they mature, they start to see, hey, maybe I don't have it all together like I thought I did. Hey, maybe my parents know more than I gave them or I give them credit for knowing. You know, they start maturing. You know, I've had that opportunity. I got a 31-year-old, so I've watched it come through. It's a beautiful sight to see if you come around my way of thinking. <laughs> Amen? They start thinking, maybe it'd be good if I listened to him and do as he says. <clears throat> and I believe the disciples... Uh, that, that is where the disciples are in their walk. You know, they're, they're confused. And it started with the, uh, with the prophecy of Christ when he said that he would have to die. They're, they're confused about that. They, they, didn't, they did not understand that death would come. And here in our text, we, we see right here that they get confused again as they're coming down the mountain. That the Son of Man will rise from the dead. You know, they, they, don't, they do not have a clear understanding if, if, why Christ had to die. And on top of that, now as they're coming down the mountain, uh, the, the, the resurrection from the dead, he said, don't talk about it till I rise from the dead. You know, now, now they're confused even more. Because they, 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 they certainly believed in a future resurrection. They understood that. That was taught. But, but that's not what Jesus was talking about as they're coming down that mountain. Jesus was clearly speaking of, of some other event, something that would happen only to him. They, they, the disciples understood the resurrection for, for the end of the world or end times, but not for the Son of Man. So there come another pile of confusion. And this confusion right here, this one stayed with them. They never clearly got the grasp on the resurrection. They never did. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 8 and 9. Disciples go to the empty tomb. Christ is risen. The tomb's empty, right? Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's Speedy John, who ran there first, he wanted to let you know that, also went in. And he saw and believed. For, listen, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So all this the whole time they're spending this time with Jesus, all the way to the empty grave, and he has risen, he's gone. And they're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Jesus dying was incomprehensible. The resurrection of Christ alone was even more confusing until the right time. Until the right time. And that's why Jesus told them to be silent about this for a limited time. You do not have enough knowledge on the situation. If you're confused and talking with others about it would only create more confusion. But only for a time, he says. Only for a time, as we know. There came a time when they could not be silent about who Jesus is and what happened. There would come a time when they fully understood the death, the burial, the burial and the resurrection, and be able to thoroughly explain and proclaim the gospel to the world. Amen? There would become a time, a point in time, when the disciples would understand that only through dying could Jesus show his power over death and his authority to be king of all. There would come a point in time that they would be able to clearly explain all of this to a lost and dying world. 
Acts 2.22. You could write it in your margins or you could turn over there. Peter stands up. He stands up boldly and says this. Listen to the knowledge of, uh, that Peter has, now has on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to, listen, the definite plan of, and foreknowledge of God. It was part of the plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and that I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, Peter says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That Jesus Christ, that Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the fathers the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He had full knowledge, full understanding, and he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. No more confusion. For a limited time, he couldn't talk about it. But after that time, Peter proclaimed that Christ had been crucified, and he proclaimed that Jesus the Son of God had risen, and he never quit preaching that. So it was natural for the disciples to be confused because they, they could not see the future. They couldn't see the other side of the cross. We had the advantage of looking back, but they could not look forward. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had much to learn about the significance of his death and resurrection. And Jesus was going to make sure that they were well prepared before he sent them out. So he told them, don't talk about it right yet. Don't talk about it. Now one more point on why they had a difficult time understanding that the Messiah would have to suffer before we leave this section here. I know you've heard this before, but I want to make sure that we're all prepared and equipped to take the gospel out into the world. Listen, the, the, the Jews who studied the Old Testament prophecies expected the Messiah to be a great king like David. That's what they were looking for. Who would, who would overthrow the enemies. Who would overthrow Rome. Their, their vision <coughs> excuse me, was limited to their own time and experience. You know, like, like you've heard us say before, they were looking for a political savior. They were looking for a military savior. And that's why they had a difficult time understanding that the values of God's eternal kingdom were different from the values of the world. Listen, they wanted relief from what? Their present problems. That's why they had a problem understanding 
the cross, the death, and the resurrection. They wanted relief from their present problems. Nothing new under the sun, is there? <laughs> you know? We have to make sure that when we come to Jesus with the eternal kingdom in mind, that's what we have to do. When we pray, thy kingdom come, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to mean it, you know? It's okay to come to God with prayer requests about healing and, and sickness and all kinds of trouble. That, that's not, not what I'm saying. Not at all. But we can't come to Jesus with all our worldly requests if we had not addressed our own problems first. And, you know, for that very reason, that's why we do the Lord's Supper the way we do. We stop and examine our own hearts before we partake. We and what that does is make sure that we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners who need forgiveness. And that's, that's where it all begins. You know, you can't move on with your walk with God if you first don't get down the doctrine of sin. And that was their problem. That's why the religious leaders in that day were looking for a Savior that would re give them relief from their present problems their exterior problems. They were not looking for a savior who could provide forgiveness of sins. That's why they missed this, the, the Messiah because they never addressed the real problem in life and that's sin. The world does not see that deliverance from sin is far more important than deliverance from physical suffering or political oppression. That's why we must. We must stay focused on Jesus and not the things of this world. That's why we do not put our faith in man. Our faith is in Christ alone. And that's why we must do as God says. Listen to his son. Listen to him. We must desire the word of God. We must listen to the words that God has given us. We don't need a political savior. We don't need a military savior. We need a savior that can forgive sins, amen? And take comfort, people. He is with us. God is with us. As we look on this mountaintop, he gives us a great example of that. We have to know in our hearts, man, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to fail, but we have to know that we can go right back to the throne, right back to Jesus, because he is with us at all times. Listen, uh, as Jesus takes those three guys up on the mountain, there they are with just Jesus, those three guys. Jesus is transfigured be where? Before them, those three guys. Elijah and Moses appear where? Before them, those three guys. A divine voice does what? Speaks to them. And at the end, this, despite of the, the, the ring of suffering and death that they had heard, Jesus stands alone with them. He's with them. In the depths of their bewilderment, Jesus is with the disciples. He is always with us. And, and you know, he's showing his disciples. Remember, he's training these guys up. He's showing them. He, he said, listen, you're, you're not expected to go at this alone. I'm going to be there with you. Hey, this is hard, 
but joyous thing of the disciples is that they can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be with them. Precisely where they hear the gospel, where they see both its glory and their own inadequacy, there's Jesus with them. The one who calls the disciples to follow him does not abandon them for glory, but turns from glory to accompanying them on the way down to the valley. He returns to accompanying them to Jerusalem, to the cross. As I studied that, it gave me great comfort. It gave me great peace. Here's Christ. Think about this. Here's Christ walking on the earth with sinners. And he's been here for a while. Sure, he missed heaven. He goes up on the mountaintop. Goes into the glory that he had. Reveals his glory. How easy would it have been for him to stay there? How easy would it have been to skip the valley, to skip the cross? But not Jesus. His love for the world was grander than his love for self. He came back down that mountain to be with his disciples. He walked back down that mountain with his disciples to let them know, I'm here. I'm here. And in the near future, he will walk with them to Jerusalem to die for them, to die for you and me. Jesus is with us at all times, and he's training up these disciples to proclaim that message. So he's training up his disciples. He wanted the disciples, number one, to understand that they will not be alone. And another big one is that they cannot do it on their own. They cannot do this on their own. They must rely on him. They needed to know that their power and strength would come from God, and they must fully rely on him. They must trust in him, and they must listen to what he says. All this is for us, too. Amen? All this is for us. Now, before we get off this mountain, we're going to get off there. <laughs> I know we've been there for two weeks. We're going to get off this mountain. There's one more thing I need to address. As they're coming down the mountain, the last thing that uh, Jesus addresses with them, look at verse 11. They ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written to them. So the disciples had another problem. They got more confusion here trying to put this together. They just had a, a preview of the glorious kingdom. They saw Jesus in his glory on that mountaintop. But they had been taught that Elijah must come before the Messiah would come. Elijah was to pave the way for the Messiah to come. He was the forerunner. So maybe they were thinking, hey, we just saw Elijah. And you, in glory, we just saw him, and now he's gone. What's going on here? They may have thought that Elijah was supposed to stay at this time and prepare the way for the Lord. You know, they think they're putting this all together, and they're, and they're trying hard to figure this out, but they still won't get it. It's, it's, it's hard to put together for them, you see. The scribes taught that they were expect the person of Elijah but the prophecy is one in the spirit of power of Elijah would come. So here's their answer. What did it say? Elijah, the person may indeed come in the future, may come before the day of the Lord, before the new heaven and earth. But now, what does Jesus tell them? John the Baptist has come as the greater Elijah. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. His message paved the way for the Messiah. 
And so this, you know, that right there will explain why in John's gospel, John the Baptist denies being, being Elijah. He said, no, I'm not Elijah the person. Not him. John the Baptist. When the delegation asked him if he was Elijah, they were thinking about the end times. They were not thinking that the kingdom of God was soon to be at hand. They were not thinking that Jesus would be bringing the kingdom of God to this earth at that time. They were thinking of end times and the messianic kingdom. But John's work was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. That's what he did. Not the end of times. He's proclaiming the Messiah's coming. He's not the Elijah who appears at the end of history, but the greater Elijah who is the Messiah's forerunner coming in the spirit and power of that ancient prophet. And so th this is what the, the scribes and Pharisees would say. They would say, hey, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because Elijah has not come back and restored all things. You know, this, this, is, this is what they would say. Jesus is not the Messiah. This is a way to dismiss Jesus as the sent one. But Jesus says, I am the one. I am the one sent by God. I am the one that brings the kingdom of God to this earth. John the Baptist is the greater Elijah who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. I am the one he spoke of, Jesus says. I am the one that the Old Testament scriptures were talking about when it says that the Son of Man will endure great sufferings and be treated with contempt. So this, this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples as he's coming down that mountain. So if you know that Elijah was to come before the day of the Lord because it is written, if you know that, then you should also know that the Son of Man will endure great suffering and he will be turned over to the Pharisees and scribes and be put to death because it is also written. You know, that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. Don't get stuck here. If you believe that, then believe this. Because they had a hard time believing of the death of Christ. The point Jesus is making to them. Search the scriptures and look what it says about a suffering servant. Maybe then you will understand, I must die and be resurrected. As far as Elijah, Jesus said, he did come. He came in the person in the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, Pastor Jared brought this to light a while back. If we take a brief look at the ministry of John the Baptist up against uh, uh, Elijah, listen, first, look at this. God predicted John's work as being that of Elijah in Luke 1.17. Second, he dressed like Elijah, 2 Kings 1.8 and Matthew. Third, like Elijah, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. Fourth, both men preached a message of repentance. Fifth, both men withstood kings and had high-profile enemies. So by looking at John the Baptist, hearing his message, seeing the resemblance of him and Elijah should have sent a clear message to the people. Jesus is the Messiah and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is telling his disciples, don't look for another sign that has to come. Nothing has to happen in order for the kingdom of God to come. It is here. Nothing else has to happen. No prophecy has to be fulfilled in order for the kingdom to come. It is here, and that's what he proclaimed in chapter 1. Remember, Jesus came and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's his message. And he came to prepare and equip the ones he called, that is, his disciples, to proclaim that very message through his power, through the power of God, not on their own. 
and it's here in chapter 8 and 9 that we see Jesus. He, he cuts back on his public ministry and starts focusing on preparing his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel. The cross is not far off from here. And so Jesus focuses on his disciples. He, we see him truly equipping his confused disciples so that, so that they can go out and proclaim it. So keep that in mind as we continue to walk through these texts here. Let's look at verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 14. We see Jesus continued to train up. And when, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So we made it off the mountain, people. We're down in the valley. The other uh, disciples, nine, describe, uh, nine disciples, are arguing with the scribes. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Jesus answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it often cast him into a fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can, all things are possible for ones who believe. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to them, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this, can, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we see Jesus training, his continuous training as they come down the mountain. And we have the disciples trying to cast out an evil spirit, which should have not been a problem for them. We know that they can do it, right? Back in chapter 6, Jesus sent them out and gave them the power to cast out demons. So what's the difference here? What's the difference? They were trying to do it on their own. They were trying to do it under their own power. They were trying to do it without Jesus, and they ended up looking foolish. And as I type that sentence, sometimes the reflection in the window where I sit, <laughs> had this wonderful picture of me there. I said, hey, that's me. They're in here. Every time I try to fix something on my own power, every time I try to take control of a situation without Jesus, every time I walk without Jesus or my prayer life is ailing, I end up looking foolish. It happens. On my own, I look foolish. Am I the only one? Y'all just looking at me. Am I the only one? <laughs> 
All right, just me then. And, and you know, you get to the other side of whatever situation it was, and you ended, end up having this conversation with God, which is actually one-sided, because, you know, you'd be like, I know, I know. I should have listened. I should have listened. You, know, you don't have to say anything, God. You don't have to say anything. I'll do better next time. God hasn't even said a word. Thank God for the convicting Holy Spirit who doesn't even have to say anything. His presence is enough. But when we live in a world in the absence of Jesus, it shows. It really shows. Our family is the first to know. Then our brothers and sisters in Christ will be able to see it. But, you know, we can't do this on our own. That's what God's telling us. We need to make sure we walk and live by the power of Jesus and his word. We, make sure, we need to make sure that we listen to him as God says. And that's what I picture going on here. James, Peter, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain, and they come up to the other disciples. They have a crowd surrounding them, and on top of that, the scribes, who are very good at arguing, are arguing with them. And it doesn't say what they're arguing about, but we could, we could be safe to assume that scribes were arguing about the disciples' power or lack of, you know, or about their authority or lack of. Or possibly they were questioning the power or authority of their master. Hey, where is your master? Where is Jesus? I'm sure the scribes jumped on the opportunity to bust these guys up, and even more so, the opportunity to bash their leader. We have seen that they've established a, pair, a pattern of trying to take out Jesus. You know, the religious leaders, including the scribes and Pharisees, have been following Jesus around for some time. So they're looking for every opportunity. And I'm sure they were delighted to see his disciples fail. So Jesus asked, what are you arguing about? Why are you arguing with them? And he asked that question, what happened? They didn't answer. But a distraught father, he comes running up. And, and, and you know, he said, Lord, look, my son is possessed with a mute spirit. And he explains to Jesus what the Spirit does to the child. And he tells Jesus, I asked your disciples to help. You wasn't here. I asked them to help. They couldn't do it. That's what the problem is. And what is Jesus' response? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is teaching and training his disciples and us also. Jesus cries out in exasperation. He's fed up with the unbelief. His unusual words here carry a biting rebuke right here. The disciples had been given the authority to do the healing, but they had not yet learned how to appreciate God's power. They had not learned how to trust in the power of God. Jesus' frustration with the unbelieving and unresponsive generation, including the crowd around him, the teachers of the laws and the scribes, the man and the nine disciples, man. He's like, man, come on, guys. None of you had faith in Christ. None of you put your faith in me. The disciples didn't put their faith in the power of God. They had been careless in their personal spiritual walk and neglected prayer. You know, that's what it says. Hey, prayer was needed here. You didn't do it. You didn't have prayer. Something as easy as prayer. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? We're going to hit on that some next week. But the authority that Jesus had given to them was of effect only if exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. Something the nine disciples had not been doing. 
Maybe we could see ourselves there. We get comfortable in our walk thinking, hey, we got this. Maybe we get comfortable in our walk and say, no need for prayer. We got this. No need for Christian fellowship. No need for church. No need to spend time in the Word listening to God's Son. We're commanded to listen to Him. And when that happens, we're no better than the people who are back there in that day. So we are to fight against getting complacent and trusting in our own strength. We must fully trust in the power of God at all times. We must keep our faith tank full. We must keep it full at all times. And, you know, when the disciples, you know, failed, not only were they, you know, cause embarrassment for them, but, you know, they robbed the Lord of the glory. They gave an in the enemy an opportunity to criticize. The failure disciples casted a shadow of doubt on the ability of Jesus. Right? What did the Father say? If. You look at Jesus. If you're able to do anything, would you please have pity on them? They revealed his doubt against regarding Jesus' ability to heal his son. But Jesus repeated the Father's words and turned them around to put doubt in the right place. In a sense, Jesus was saying, if I'm able to do anything, I can do all things. <laughs> it's not if I can do anything. But what it does depend on is, do you believe I can? Do you believe I can? Spiritual power comes when a person turns from self to God in faith. Then the possibilities are limitless. All things can be done. This father had placed limits on Jesus' on God's power there, if you can. Nothing new under the sun. We do it all the time. Listen, Jesus' words did not mean when he said that all things are possible through faith. He didn't mean we could automatically obtain anything we want if we just think positivity. No, it doesn't work that way. That's wrong teaching. That's taking this verse out of context. Well, by faith you can have a new car, whatever. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus meant that anything is possible if we believe because nothing is too difficult for God. We can't put God in a box. He's God. He can do all things. He can do all things. And this is where the focus should be, not on self. We cannot, listen, we cannot have everything for which we pray as if by magic because we have faith. But with faith, we can have everything we need to serve Christ. That's the point of the text. It's not that we can have everything we pray for, but with faith, we can have everything we need to serve Christ. He will equip us, and he will be with us. We are free to ask for whatever we want as long as we realize that God will answer according to his will. We can do that. When we will what he, he wills, then we will truly have the mind of Christ and can ask anything, being assured of God's answer. But you know, I love the Father's response to Jesus, verse 24. Immediately, there's that word again, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The father immediately understood Jesus' meaning. And that's why he said, I believe, help my unbelief. From the beginning, he understood who Jesus was. He called him teacher. He called him Lord. 
He said, I believe. And then he honestly and humbly said, help my unbelief. This, real, this man realized that he had nothing in himself to make him worthy of having Jesus answer his request. Yet he had come. We can go there. He acknowledged that his faith was as weak and exhausted as his body was. And that's why he was at the feet of the master. The man cries out with tears, confessing both his faith and its weaknesses. I believe. Help my unbelief. He's doing what God said to do. He was listening to the son. He was at the feet of Jesus, and he put his faith in the son of God. He said, help me. That's what we're supposed to do. Just like the disciples, we cannot do this on our own. We must have faith in Jesus. Just like the father of that boy, we must trust that God will give us the faith to believe, and he will. He says he will. So take comfort, people. In times of confusion, times of stress, when we don't understand, when heartache comes, when persecution comes, take comfort to know that God is with us at all times. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But we are commanded to do what God said. What did God say? Listen to his son. We are to be in the world. We are to be in the word. We are to be in prayer. And by doing so, we will put our trust in Jesus. And then we will glorify Jesus in all that we do. Pastor Ed.